Hi, thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. So glad you guys are here this morning. This morning we're in Titus 2, 11 to 15, and this is my favorite passage of this book. This is what I've been looking forward to um, throughout this series is this passage right here. It's just five verses. We have a super long Paul sentence again. Uh, fortunately for you guys, it's not as long as it needs to be. We use the NIV to teach here at FBC, so it's only verses 12 to 14 that are one sentence. In the ESV that I study at home, 11 through 14 are all one sentence, and then the last verse is three, so a little crazy, but we're going to work through it, and what we're going to be focusing on this morning is this idea of God's grace. Now, this is everything. This lands kind of in the middle of this book, and to me, this is everything. Everything that we do here at FBC, this idea of leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. The idea of preaching the gospel, growing, knowing Jesus, everything that's being taught in Titus up to this point comes down to the power and the effects of God's grace. In the first week, we looked at Paul talking to Titus about uh, growing in faith and knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and describing what godly and biblical leaders look like, what people who are leaders in the church should look like, their character. And this is all dependent on God's grace. We don't conjure that up by ourselves, but we can experience that as we lean into God's grace. The second week, Doug talked about this idea of dispelling false teachings through the truth. And this, again, is just an act of grace. We can't just overcome these false teachings by our own strength or come up with truth on our own. This is an extension of God's grace. And then last week, Doug was talking about in Titus where, you know, Paul's telling him what it looks like to live a godly life in different areas of life, kind of these different categories, and how to actually live this faith out in a tangible way. And again, this is all just because of God's grace working through people. And this is, this is huge. I'm just glad you guys are here this week because we, we can't miss this. This is the bedrock, the foundation, the framework for all that we teach and all that we do as followers of Jesus Christ. It is all by grace. But we struggle with this. We, we try to conjure up enough goodness or enough ability in our lives to, to be good enough or to be close to God or to live a great life, and it's, it just never works. Some of you have maybe been here for years and years at FBC or a different church or kind of part of the Christian faith, and you've been trying, and you've been working to be good enough. If I can only be like this, or you compare yourself to others, and you, you just try to, you know, please God through your actions and your goodness, and you try to say the right things and do the right things and check off your spiritual checklists and all that, and, and it just doesn't amount to that much. It leaves you feeling empty and directionless at the end of the day. It just doesn't work, and, and you need to give up. That, that's a that's an endeavor that's like chasing after the wind. It will never arrive you there. When we try to be good enough, we ignore the fact that we 
are not good enough and we never will be good enough. And maybe that's a harsh thing to say, but scripture teaches that we are broken, sinful people who will never measure up to God and his glorious standards. But that's okay because God's grace is bigger than our sinfulness. God's grace is bigger than our inadequacies, is bigger than our insufficiencies. And God freely offers this gift of grace so that we don't have to be good enough. So this morning, we're going to be working through this passage. And at the end, all I want is for us to have a healthy recognition of what God's grace is all about and not leave this place with this new thing we need to try to do, another like, spiritual level we need to try to climb to, but to just surrender, give up, and say, God, fill me with your grace, and you be the one that produces this in me rather than me trying. You just got to give up. So this morning we're looking at five verses, and I would say that each of these verses highlights a different gift of God's grace. This morning we'll be looking at five gifts of God's grace, and if you've got bulletin or app notes, there'll be some stuff to follow along there, and each verse is going to highlight a different one, and as we work through these verses, we'll talk about the verse, we'll look at one of the gifts, and I'll try to offer an illustration or an analogy or whatever to try to highlight kind of the importance of this gift. And as we do, I hope we just bask in the amazingness of who Jesus is and his grace and how that's just a free gift that's been offered to us. And I want to suggest one thing really quickly too, because a lot of us, you know, sometimes it's easy to think about grace as this thing that you experience when you first decide to be a follower of Jesus. You say, yeah, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. I want to follow you. Grace is not the initial experience. Grace is the relationship that we have with Jesus. It is, it is the substance of this relationship. As you follow Jesus, it is only by grace that you grow in this relationship. Grace is the active force and element, in, yes, in the introduction to Jesus, but as we continue to follow him. And I think this is really fitting on a day like today, on Remembrance Day weekend, because really, Jesus has won the victory for us, and we just accept this free gift as we reflect on the fact that other people have won victory for us, for our freedoms, and we are just recipients of that amazing gift. Before we hop into the text, why don't you guys pray with me? God, thank you so much that we have this text that we get to study, and thank you for what it's been uh, here on Sunday mornings and in our small groups, and I pray as we reflect on these verses this morning that you would speak to us and that you would just help us have a deeper and greater understanding of your immense grace and love. Amen. So this morning, five verses, five gifts of God's grace, five illustrations, Let's do it. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. So gift number one, I would say, as a gift of God's grace is salvation. Now, I'm not one to usually use kind of like big, weird, like churchy, Christianese words. This morning, we're, we're looking at a couple, and because some of them are in the text, but some of them are just kind of the, the best description of what we're talking about here, and we'll, we'll unpack what they mean a little bit. Maybe you, maybe you are aware of what salvation means, maybe not. We'll dig inside a little bit, but I want you to check this out. It says, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation. The grace of God has appeared. What does that mean? I think a lot of times they have this misconception that, you know, God in the Old Testament was this kind of like, you know, kind of tougher God that wasn't very gracious. God is the same God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was grace in the Old Testament. If you read the text with a healthy understanding of the gospel, what you start to understand is that God has always been gracious. What he has pivoted in is how he extends that to us because we are such a difficult, flippant people. 
And so what happens when Paul is talking about this, this appearing of grace, he's talking about the incarnation of grace that came to earth when God, the ruler of the universe, stepped off of his heavenly throne, didn't need to, had no obligation, but said, sure, I will go down to a broken, sinful world and die a brutal death for these people in order to offer them grace. And this is what Paul is talking about, about the appearance of God's grace. It wasn't that God started having grace, it's just now we see this embodied in who Jesus is. This offers this thing called salvation. If you've heard this word, probably what it's most commonly used to refer to in like the Christian church nowadays is the idea that when you die, you'll spend eternity with God instead of eternity separated from God. And that is true, but I think that's such an incomplete definition of what salvation is about. God's grace offers this thing called salvation. So what does it actually mean, and how how big is it? Salvation in the Bible, in the Greek and Hebrew text, what it really means is it, it, it really means deliverance, to set something free from something. That's what the language means. And a lot of times when it uses that word, it's, it's in the immediate. So often we think that salvation is something that's triggered by our death, but salvation is not something triggered by our death. Salvation is something triggered by Jesus' death. Salvation is a gift that's a result of Jesus' death, not a gift that we kind of cash in or hand in our coupon when we die and be like, okay, we get to go to heaven instead of being separated from God for all eternity. That is true, God's grace does provide that, but it's so much more than that. So at the text, so at scripture, when it, there's this talk of salvation, it means deliverance from lots of different things. When the Israelites are freed from slavery, when they're delivered from slavery, it's described as salvation from their oppressors. And I think so often we just focus on salvation as this far off thing that we're gonna cash in on one day when we die and we forget that we can live it right now. So what does that look like? I'll offer you an illustration. And this illustration, I don't mean for this to be touchy, I don't mean to be cavalier about this, but I just can't think of a better way to describe this in my mind. And you know, maybe a little bit of a sensitive topic. We've, a lot of us have been through this and gone through this with family members. But imagine you were diagnosed with a serious disease, in fact, a terminal disease. And the doctor said, in nine or 10 years, this disease is going to end your life. It's going to take your life from you. You'd be sad, I mean, I'm assuming. This would not be good news. But that's not the only bad news about it. You know, the, the sin, it's not that the only bad news of sin is that one day when you die, it's going to cost you your eternity. There's stuff going on in the meantime. When you get a terminal disease, it's not just, oh, one day I'm going to die. It's now all the treatments, the time, the expense, the emotional, physical, mental pain I got to go through, how it affects my family, you know, what, what it drains from me in the meantime. And that's how, sin, sin is not just something that's waiting in eternity to take something from us. It starts to take stuff from us now, just like a disease would. If the doctor came to you one day and said, I've got great news, you have been completely cured, would you be mostly just excited because, like, would you be only excited because, oh, 10 years from now I'm not going to die? Or would you be excited because, oh, in these 10 years I don't have to experience the suffering that's the effect of this disease? The answer is yes, right? Both. You'd be excited about both. You'd be like, wow, what a relief that this won't take my life, but in the meantime, it won't be taking my life on a daily basis. And this is what it's like with sin and salvation. It's not just, at, you know, there's this reckoning in this one moment, and that, that's what sin and salvation fight over. They fight over our lives now. And when Jesus Christ came and offered grace through his death and resurrection, he didn't just say, oh, one day you're gonna be able to go spend eternity in paradise. Yes, you'll get that, but in this life now, you can be freed, you can be delivered, you can experience salvation, 
salvation from the effects and the grip of sin on your life now. Through the Gospels, when Jesus talks about salvation and eternal life, he doesn't say, oh, congratulations, one day when you die, something good's gonna be. No, he says, you have eternal life now. You are living it now. This gift of grace has come into your life now, and now you are a saved person who walks in that now. Obviously, you struggle with sin, but your struggle doesn't need to be walking around, moping around, trying to be better, and trying to overcome the guilt that you feel, and struggling with guilt and insecurity because you're not good enough. Your struggle needs to just be when stuff comes up, realizing oh, that's something I'm saved from and taking that to God and confessing it and understanding that his grace completely liberates you from the guilt, the doubt, the worry, the insecurity, and ultimately the eternal effects of that. We need to live, we need to live in that for you. I could take the whole morning to just do this one gift. We need to live that. So many of us are fighting a battle that's already been won. Jesus won that battle. And here we are, trying to be good enough to make up for our guilt and our shortcoming. You just can't. Just give up. Okay, we're going to continue on. Verse 12. It, God's grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, no to worldly passions, and it helps us live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So the second gift, we use another big churchy word, it's this word sanctification. If you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard this word, good chance that you're like, yeah, I've heard it lots, no idea what it means. Um, but this word is this perfect description of what's going on here. You read verse 12 and you're like, wow, God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, no to worldly passions, and to live upright and holy and godly lives. You might feel like, oh man, like <laughs> that's just not me. I mess up all the time. Join the club. And Paul would say the same, join the club. This word sanctification, what it is, is it says, it, it's, it goes beyond just liberating you from the effects of sin and freeing you from the evil, freeing you from the negative. It, you know, that, that, that sinful nature that you're born with, salvation liberates you from that, but sanctification doesn't just leave you there. Sanctification takes you from evil to good. This is God working out his goodness in you and helping you to say no to sinfulness. This isn't gonna be 100% every time, but growing in your saying no to sinfulness and not just staying there, but saying yes to godliness, to uprightness, to righteousness, to reflecting who he is. By way of illustration, if you've read scripture, you know that scripture talks about how we were made to reflect God's image. We're image bearers of God. People see God through us. And actually in the first week, I made this, uh, this argument that you are the window through which people look to see who Jesus is. As a follower of Jesus, you are people's picture of that. We are called to reflect God's image to the world around us. So I want you to imagine yourself as a mirror standing, I don't know if mirrors can stand, but you're hanging out there in front of God and you're this mirror and you were created to be this mirror that just reflects his image so people look at you and they see God's goodness through you. But at some point, someone came and they took mud and they smeared it all over this mirror. And I don't just mean like, you know, a little bit of dirt and water type mud, but I mean like if you stepped into a gross swamp that's been sitting there for like a trillion years with all the green stuff on top and your foot sinks in two feet, that gross, miry, slimy, sorry if you're like kind of, this is making you gag a bit, but stuff all over this mirror and inches thick, dried on, caked on mud. No light can get through it. 
As the mirror, you might say, well, if I just try to reflect hard enough, I can reflect through the mud. I can keep this mud and I can just reflect and show God's image. Maybe as a mirror, I can clean myself off. But that's not how it works. The only way for you to reflect God's image, despite the fact that you have been covered with the mud and the mire and the filth of sin, is as God, the creator, starts to reach out and pick the mud off, chip away at it, starts to wash some of it off, pulls out his heavenly pressure washer and starts blasting it off. As it starts to come off, it's a messy process, it's a long process, but you start to see these glimmers of mirror coming through, and all of a sudden God's image is reflected. This is the idea, it's not that you were just saved from sinfulness, but you were saved to goodness. What was intended for evil, your life in sinfulness, what was evil, what produced evil works now, not only doesn't produce the evil, but can now begin to produce the good that reflects the godliness of who God is. So to make that real, maybe, maybe your struggle is that naturally you're a very selfish person. God's plan isn't to help you just not be selfish and leave you at this neutral space, but to turn you into someone who is ridiculously generous. To not just say, okay, you're a little bit less selfish. No, say, let's get rid of the selfishness and let's give and give and give. Let's be selfless. Let's value others above ourselves. Maybe you struggle with anger and frustration and violence. God isn't like, okay, let's just mitigate those actions. Let's move you into being someone who's kind and compassionate and helps others grow. Maybe you struggle with gossip, slander, trash talk. God doesn't want to just get rid of those words. He wants to redeem those words. He wants to sanctify you. He wants to chip the mud away and let your words be encouraging, life-bringing words that reflect his image to the world around you. What an amazing picture, because for me, I know I struggle in so many ways, but to know that if I just give up and I surrender to God, rather than trying to be good enough, that he will chip the mud away and he will take over my actions and use what was intended for evil and turn it into something that can be used for good. And this is the gift of sanctification. Leave that up there for a second because we're in the middle of a sentence. So what's going on in verse 12? It says, God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So it sanctifies us in this present age, in this life now, the life that we live now, this gift of sanctification is for right now. In this present age, we can be sanctified. Continues on in verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we can be sanctified in this present age, we can have the mud taken away so that we can reflect God's image, so that we can be, not only just be saved from sin, but that we can produce good works, we can live godly lives in this present age while we wait for something coming in the future, the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the greatest acts of grace is that Jesus, as I referenced earlier, got off his heavenly throne and came and gave his life to us. People who did nothing to deserve that gave it to us. But not only did he come and once and live this life and die for us, he promised out of his grace, out of his kindness, out of his ridiculous generosity, I'm gonna come back. And at that point, I'm gonna turn everything right. I'm gonna redeem everything everything. I'm going to make it new. And this gift is hope. We can look forward, as we live in this present age, we can look forward to this gift of hope, hope that is eternal. And with our strivings and with our desire to try to be good enough or to do enough or to live up to some standard that's impossible, what we do is we apply ourselves to things 
to try to find hope and meaning and purpose in this world that are futile. It's a lost cause trying to find hope when hope is already available somewhere and we're looking for hope in places that we will never find it. Think of it this way. How many of you, I'm asking a question, this is a Baptist church, so you don't have to put your hands up or respond or anything, don't worry about that, but here's the question. How many of you have ever been looking for something and you just can't find it, you're ripping your house apart and you're going crazy, looking for like your keys or your wallet and you're just like, you're like tearing the walls apart, you're getting mad at everyone, you're blaming people in your mind, you're like, I can't believe my wife moved this or stupid kids where they hide this, you know, and you're having these arguments in your mind, you're fuming, you're so mad, you're getting desperate, and all of a sudden, in your desperation, you look down, and there in your hand are your keys. And you're like, well, they're, all, they're, they're still stupid, but you know, it's their fault still. But no. I hope you don't call your kids stupid. Please don't. That's not the takeaway from this morning. We've all done that, right? You're looking for something. You're like, where's this thing? And it's right there. You're holding on to it, or you're wearing, you know, I've seen, I love, I love people with glasses. I don't have glasses. My eyes, you know, work better than yours, but. Um, they're looking around for their glasses, and to be fair, they're at a disadvantage, and they're looking around, and where are they? They're on top of their head, right? And it's just like, man, and that is what we do when we look for hope in other places. We look, maybe if I can get good enough grades, get to the right university, make enough money one day, maybe if I can be a good enough parent, maybe if I can be a good enough spouse, maybe if that guy or girl would like me and make me feel valued and loved and cared about. All of these aren't bad things, but they are not a place where you are going to find an appropriate level of hope. Jesus promised that he will give us eternal hope. And we so often strive for hope in this life and meaning and purpose, and we look around and it's foolish. You know, this hope is right here and we're just looking around. We're like a psycho ripping our house to shreds, looking for something that's already there. So wherever you're looking for hope this morning that isn't simply an act of God's grace, that he will give you eternal hope, that he is our hope through the storms, through the good, through the, I don't care how good or bad things are, he is the only place that can give you an appropriate amount of hope. If you're looking anywhere else, I can give you one guarantee, is that, that is that you are going to come up empty-handed and you are going to feel wanting at the end of that. It's an easy trap to fall into. So just to recap the sentence, Sanctification, God's grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to live upright and holy lives in this present age while we wait for our eternal hope when Jesus appears, verse 14, who, Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Gift number four we find in this verse, and that's redemption. Maybe you're like, Ryan, salvation, sanctification, redemption. These are kind of like, aren't we just like using different words for the same thing? And to be fair, there's some crossover. I mean, if we made a Venn diagram, there'd be some overlap, you know, some blended colors there. But this is, this is how I want to define this, and hopefully this will give you a health, helpful picture because I, I want us to have a broad view of what God's grace does in our lives. So God's grace offers salvation, sanctification, and redemption. These are three that kind of seem similar in some ways, but here's how I'll differentiate them. Salvation is about what God has saved you from. God's grace has saved you 
from something. That's salvation. Sanctification is what, God, what God's grace has saved you to, the life that God's grace has brought you to. Sanctification is this life that you can now live of goodness and godliness and uprightness, saying no to ungodliness, that's sanctification. And redemption is more, I would say, is more relational. It's the relationship that God has saved you for. This intimate relationship with him that he has saved you for. So I'll unpack that one more time. Salvation being the the evil that God has saved you from through his grace. Sanctification being the goodness that he has saved you into. And then redemption would be this beautiful relationship with your king and creator that he has saved you for. I love this. Scripture teaches, it uses this analogy that when we're born, we, we struggle with this thing called sinfulness, this brokenness, this desire to go against God's will for our lives. And we just, we just, we just born with it. We just go for it. And somewhere in there, he can intersect that with his grace and free us from that. But if we, as we continue in our sinfulness, when we're in that state, Scripture describes us as slaves, people who are in bondage, who are chained up by the effects of sin, and that sin holds us hostage as a, as a slave where we have this evil master. And I'll use that as my illustration. Imagine if you were a slave in captivity to an evil, terrible master. That master wants to do everything they can to control you and to hold on to you. But if you were like, I have the solution, here's how I can be free. I'm gonna work as hard as I can as a slave. I'm gonna be as good as I can. I'm gonna be the best slave ever. I'm gonna do all the things. I'm gonna do this right. I'm gonna excel. I'm gonna achieve. What's the slave master gonna do? Are they gonna set you free? No, they're gonna tighten their grip. You're their best slave. The slave master will tighten their grip on you and say, this slave isn't going anywhere. The only way for a slave owned by an evil slave master to be redeemed is it for, for a master who's greater and more powerful or richer to come along and say to that slave master, I, just regardless of anything that slave's done, I am going to redeem them. I am taking, I will pay the price. And Jesus paid the price. And it was a big price. I, I think we have an enemy that loves it when we're trapped in slavery and we go around trying to just get our way out of slavery, be righteous out of slavery, do it of our own strength because what we do is we tighten the grip of the master on our lives by not focusing on Jesus's grace. We focus on our own actions and when we focus on that, we're looking at ourselves rather than the gospel and that grip of slavery tightens itself so tightly and we become deeply entrenched because we are blind to the gift of God's grace as he wants to redeem us to be his own. From slaves in the house of an evil master into the kingdom of a loving king who adopts us as his sons and daughters. Ephesians 1 talks about how he adopts us to the intimate relationship of being his children in his kingdom. From slaves to royalty. Only by God's grace. You can't good your way into that. Verse 15, we'll wrap it up here. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. These then, these things, because of grace, are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. So you're supposed to teach it's just encourage. We don't struggle with that. This word rebuke, this is like 2019. We don't like words right like that. So if you're struggling with that word, think about this. You know, how loving is it when someone who knows you comes alongside you and challenges things that you're doing that you know you shouldn't be up to and challenges you to grow and to become what you could be? 
We are called to rebuke people. And we oftentimes try to do this on our own, teach and encourage and rebuke out of our own strength. We think we're smart enough or good enough or we've, we've got these great enough strengths that we can do this. But we're futile trying to do this on our own. And what I would suggest is that the fifth great gift of God's grace is empowerment. We know the truth that we can use to teach, rebuke, and encourage as an act of grace. We're not so smart that we figured this out on our own. It's a gift from God because of his grace that we did nothing to deserve. It's a gift from him. And then our ability to use that to impact people's lives and to change the world around us is, again, an extension of his grace working through us. This is incredible news that we can do this. So often we try to do it on our own. You think about it this way. About a month or so ago, my wife's family, they live in um, Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. Maybe like, I've never heard of that. It's actually Manitoba's fourth largest city, but uh, yeah, never heard of it because it's Manitoba. Um, And so they live there and they had this three-day blackout, no power for three days straight. Some of you are like, that's unbelievable. I can't believe that. I had no idea that Manitoba had electricity in it. Same boat. (laughs) But they went without electricity for three days straight. Houses dark, no heating, you can't charge your cell phone, that's probably the worst part. You can't cook because the microwave doesn't work. You know, you're just nothing but darkness. Living, if, if someone came and just took electricity away from us, how lost would we be? You know, we, well, we definitely have to move to somewhere warmer, but you know, we would be lost. And, and I think this is such a good picture for us trying to do this faith thing on our own rather than acknowledging that it is only God's grace working through us. God's grace is powerful and effective. It offers us truth and it equips us and empowers us to use that. Us trying to do it on our own is like people flailing around in a powerless house in the dark trying to figure it out on their own, totally powerless to be able to do much. Stop flailing around in a dark house and just give up and say, God, work through me. Offer me truth and help me use that to teach people to help them learn more about your character, to encourage people, to take truth and actually help people be excited about what they're doing in life and find purpose and meaning and hope in that. And to rebuke people, to come alongside people lovingly and because of the gift of truth and grace that we have to come alongside them and say, hey, listen, there's something better. There's something more. God's grace is powerful to change lives. It's changed mine. I'm sure it's changed yours. So let that be the power by which we change other people's lives. Concludes here by saying, do not let anyone despise you. Kind of a weird ending. It's like, uh, you know, it kind of sounds arrogant. Like, oh, no one can look down on me. But when you think about the reality of what these five verses teach, why would anyone be able to despise us or disregard us or make us feel like nothing? We have been redeemed from slavery to be children of the most high God. We have experienced salvation, a freedom from sin, sanctification, the ability by God's goodness and grace, even though we're sinful people, to produce good in this world. He's offered us eternal hope, and now he empowers us. You know, when I think about God's grace, a lot of times it gives me this bigger picture of who he is, but it often gives me a smaller picture of who I am. And I think that's so much of what grace is about, is just having more and more humility and having a better understanding of the fact that we're nothing. We, we didn't deserve anything. God created this world as a complete gift of grace. We did nothing to deserve that. He didn't need something. He 
created it as an act of grace and now walks alongside his people offering grace to give them these things. But so often we give into the insecurities of what do people think? How do we measure up? How do we compare to others? Who cares? The God who created the universe, the King of Kings calls me his child and has given me this immense gift of his grace. Who could despise me? Doesn't matter. I want to I land here. It is so easy to get trapped in this idea, this mindset of trying to figure it out on our own, trying to be good enough. So often we compare ourselves to others and we become insecure and we, you know, am I good enough? Am I doing this? How do, and it just will get us nowhere. When we do that, we try to be our own gospel. And that's a false gospel. The gospel, the good news, is a gift that all we can do is sit back and humbly accept. And one of the biggest things we need to do with regard to that is to just give up, to surrender and say, God, I am gonna stop trying and I'm gonna let you start doing. Because the more we try, the more we take our eyes off of what Jesus is already doing, what he's already done, and we don't leave room for him to work in our lives. Because here's the truth that I wanna leave you guys with. When we surrender our strivings, we make space for God's grace. When we surrender our strivings, we make space for God's grace. All you need in your life is to create the room for God's grace that is already there, that has already appeared to come into your life and change everything. It will do more than you could ever dream of or imagine doing in and of your own strength. So this week, there's not some big homework, like go do this thing, go do this thing. That would be pretty counterintuitive to the message. I want to invite you guys this week to just, I encourage you, take Titus 2, 11 through 15, spend some time at home reading on it, meditating on it, and saying, God, thank you so much for your grace. I give up. I surrender. I'm going to stop trying to perform well enough or do enough on my own. God, just fill me with your grace. Reflect on these gifts and allow God to change you into the child that you were created to be. Why don't you guys stand up? Love to pray with you guys, and the band's going to come out, and we'll, we'll sing, and then... Um, Hopefully you have an awesome week reflecting on God's grace. Pray with me. God, thank you. All I can say is thank you for your grace. That your grace was manifest through your expression of love, of coming and dying on the cross for us. Sorry that we get in the way. Sorry that we focus on what we can do rather than focusing on what you have already done. We stand here and we just thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you are doing. And we ask you to continue to infuse our lives with your grace and help us grow as a result of the work that you're doing in our lives. We love you so much, God. Amen.